very fond of each other and I used to try to convince her of God and she used to try to convince me of atheism. I mean, you know, that's the kind of fun entertainment I provided for, uh, for people I'd knocked around with in those days. In making that argument, Dawkins is not really making an argument at all, he's just making a statement of prejudice. Where am I going to encounter Jesus? Of course you find him in the, in the lives of Christians, but you're going to encounter him mainly in the New Testament. So I read the Gospels and the Epistles as a journalist would read them. Welcome to the Ask podcast. This is our first one. And basically, we're going to be looking at this book, Christians, which is written by Greg Sheridan. And we're going to look at it in the presence of the author. So, Greg, uh, welcome. Can you introduce yourself, please? Well, great to be with you, David. So, uh, I'm uh, my name's Greg Sheridan. I'm the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper. Uh, I've been a journalist forever, for 42 or 43 years, a full-time professional journalist, and I freelanced uh, before that. And uh, I guess my major professional involvement was Asia, but I've uh, written a lot about um, Australian politics. And this is my second book on Christianity. So I've been a lifelong Christian and um, finally uh, worked out what the good story, what the big story was. Took me, you know, 37 or 38 years, but got there in the end. Okay. Now, um... Uh, I should have said for those who are listening who, who don't know who I am and why should you, uh, I'm a Scottish Presbyterian minister who works with Anglicans in Sydney and I love talking to Australian Catholics, which is why I'm talking to Greg Sheridan. <laughs> um, Greg, you're, you're down in Melbourne, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's right. And we're still both in lockdown. Yeah, so I'm a Sydney sider originally and um, yeah. I've had three great institutional loyalties in my life, David. The... Uh, Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs in the NRL side, uh, the um, News Corporation for whom I work, and uh, and as you say, the Catholic Church, of which I'm a member. Now, all three institutions have had their problems, uh, but, you know, as my Irish uh, relatives often say, the faithful never die. So, uh, so I've stuck with all three institutions in their ups and downs. Now, I'm, I'm struck, I mean, the book itself, we're, we're, we're going to talk about it chapter by chapter, so that gives us some time to go into it. You used a phrase there right at the beginning where you said you've been a Christian all your life. Now, there are some people listening to this and say, well, that's impossible because at some point you must decide to become a Christian. I mean, what do you understand? You've called the book Christians. What do you understand by the term Christian and what do you mean by that phrase? Well, David, um, very deliberately in the book, I take the point of view as a writer, um, which C.S. Lewis gave us the great example of, the mere Christianity consensus. So I respect all Christian denominations, and my definition of really Christians that I wanted to be close to was any Christian or Christian church or group who could assent to the Apostles' Creed. I mean, if they if they thought the Apostles' Creed was the truth, you know, uh, I believe in one God, uh, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If you can say all those things and mean them, that's fine with me. You're a good Christian. Not that I'm judging anybody's Christianity in any way, but that's the, so I'm taking a non-denominational approach. So uh, what do I think is a Christian? I guess I've never really worried much about the definition, but I'd say it's someone who believes in Jesus Christ as uh, 
So coming out as a Christian was quite a big process for me. And to have a cultural affiliation with one branch or other of Christianity is good fun in Australia. We often sort of joke about that. But to come out and say, I believe Jesus Christ is my saviour. I believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ. I believe in the bodily resurrection, uh, that he is a, the saviour, the son of God. I believe in the four last things, um, death, judgment, heaven, hell. To come out and talk about all that explicitly was um, uh, was quite a, a leap for me. But um, I, I guess I'm not that hung up on definitions, really. But I think any anyone who who believes the truths espoused in the Apostles' Creed is a Christian, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to run an organization called Solas, and we deliberately took the Apostles' Creed because it allowed Christians of all denominations. I mean, there were people who went to church who didn't, who couldn't affirm the Apostles' Creed honestly. I mean, I, I take the definition of Christian very simply as being a follower of Jesus Christ in, in all that that means biblically. But when you were a child or a teenager, did you ever, were you ever at a stage where you thought, either I don't believe in God or God is relevant to my life or I haven't a clue what this is or I'm not interested? I mean... Well, David, the answer is yes, and I'll tell you when that happened. But um, I'd have to say honestly, so I wouldn't for a minute say my experience of Christianity is, you know, exemplary or, or, or something that other people should seek out or follow. Nothing like that, nothing like that. In fact, you know, the deep hesitation I had in coming out was I've been a journalist for 40, 42 years. You know, that that says it all. You know, I, I mean, I've had the same rackety life that journalists have, you know. And uh, But um, my own... Uh, so God was in our household and uh, the Christian faith was the template in which my family lived. And uh, my parents, very good people, but I had the normal adolescent arguments with them and so forth, you know. They're both dead now, but they're wonderful people. And certainly the Christian faith was the centre of their lives. I mean, it would never have occurred to us in a million years not to go to church on Sunday, not to say our prayers, uh, you know, not to take the Christian side in any um, intellectual dispute. Now, I have never really had much trouble believing. I've had a lot of trouble living up to any kind of Christian standard of behavior but I, I, I've never had real trouble believing but one one day in my life and I I recount this in the previous book God is good for you I was a young man uh, around about going to university full of optimism and energy and uh, self-belief you know that kind of irrational belief you have when you're young that you're immortal you can run through walls you can do everything you're going to be the prime minister you're going to win the Nobel Prize you're going to be a great author all the rest of it and uh, very often, by the way, that can be succeeded the next month by the pits of despair where you have no idea what the purpose of life is and so on. But in that day, at that moment, I was feeling pretty yeasty, pretty full of myself. And I was going out, I was keeping company with a very nice young woman who was a conscientious atheist. And um, uh, we were very fond of each other. And I used to try to convince her of god and she used to try to convince me of atheism i mean you know that's the kind of fun entertainment i provided for uh, for people i knocked around with in those days and um there was one day when i i thought well so she really believes that this is all there is we're just matter and energy and i, I remember the train i was getting a train from chatswood to uh, central because i'm sydney cider originally and the train stopped at Artaman for about 10 or 15 minutes. 
it was one of those baking hot Sydney days, you know, and I was looking down at the people um, on the street below the station. They're about the size of ants in my eyes. And I thought, so is this really all there is? Is this all there is? Is there nothing more than energy and matter? Are those people down there who look about the size of ants, are they no more significant than ants? Are they no more significant than that railway seat that people are sitting on? Can this possibly be true? And first of all, it was an incredibly depressing thought. I thought, well, what a, what a sad, dead, lifeless idea that is. And I just couldn't, and I, I sort of, I didn't really want to become an atheist or anything, but I, I, I was giving it its best shot. You know, I was saying, well, well, can I go down this road? And um, as I say, first of all, it was so depressing. And then second of all, it just seemed against all the lived experience of life and everything. And uh, by the time the train pulled out, I had lost faith in atheism, you know, and by the time the train hit Winyard, I was fat and happy again as a, as a believing Christian. And that's well, as near as I ever came <laughs> through, a, through a crisis of belief. There are lots of crises about practice and, you know, direction of my life and all that sort of thing. But in terms of a crisis of belief, that's as close as I came, I think. Okay, well, we're going to continue to explore this belief because I'm hoping that people who listen to this will come from all spectrums of belief, if you like, from sort of militant atheists to I'm almost in heaven, you know, <laughs> to saint. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because when you started to speak there, I thought this is going to be a real scoop. This is like Greg's forgotten that he's online. He thinks he's in a confessional. He's, <laughs> you know, I thought I thought we were going to get confessions of an Australian journalist, you know, but never mind. Um, but I know that I know that I know that railway line very very well, of course, um, because I my apartment overlooks our Tarman station, so I can visualise you being there. And in a previous generation, I would have been one of those people who, you know, well, not running to the station because North Shore people don't run to stations. We know that another train is coming, but but um, yeah, I, I, it's funny because I so. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do, to do this discussion with you was as I read, as I've read both your books, I felt an empathy and a similarity of experience. So for me, uh, I grew up in a Christian home, but tried really, really hard to be an atheist and I just couldn't do it. And I say to my atheist friends, the reason I couldn't do it was intellectually, it didn't make sense. That was my problem. My problem wasn't emo my problem wasn't emotionally. Emotionally, I was very happy to be an atheist. It would have, to me, made life a lot easier. Um, but I, just intellectually, I couldn't do it. So I, I feel that's a fairly similar experience to some degree. Oh, I think so. And I, I also felt that intellectually. Um, but you know, belief is an action of the will as much as the intellect, or in some respects, yeah. it's more an act of the will than the intellect. So. If I had come to a different conclusion with the will, I would then have had to tame my intellect, but I couldn't, uh, I just couldn't bring myself uh, to go in that direction anyway. And um, so I guess every day I've said my prayers and uh, I've, you know, asked God for mercy. Um, sometimes you think, well, this is a pretty feeble excuse uh, after you've done the same bad thing four million times, you know, but, but there mm -hmm. it is, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's who we are. It is who we are. And we're going to, I mean, the, the, the fascinating thing about your, this, your latest book is the subtitle, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. And we'll keep coming back to the person of Christ. But 
Can I go back to your previous book? Um, I mean, I know you've written several books, but your previous book on Christianity, God is Good for You. Now, can you tell us a little bit about that? And in particular, um, I, I've had a fair bit to do with Richard Dawkins and particularly his argument, uh, along with Christopher Hitchens, that that in effect, religion is the cause of all evil. And, you know, religion is bad for you. Um, and I, you know, I've responded both to Dawkins and to Hitchens. Uh, and I, I think your first book seemed to me to be a very effective answer to them, although it, it's not billed as such. So do you want to tell us something about your first book? Well, David, I'm glad you thought that. And certainly the first book was partly a response to Dawkins and Hitchens. <clears throat> By the way, I thought Hitchens was an infinitely more sympathetic character than Dawkins. Yes. I mean, yes. Hitchens, Hitchens was not, you know, an ideal person or anything, but but I liked him because he was much more of a knockabout journo and he was yeah. much less pompous than Dawkins. He, yeah. Dawkins seems to, I, I mean, I don't mean to be mean about these people, but Dawkins kind of presents himself as the Pope of atheism and he lays down sort of dogmatic statements and he gets very cross if you contradict him or anything. Whereas Hitchens is a knockabout journo who's read a lot of books, seen a lot of life and thinks he has something to say. And, uh, you know, I, I admire and identify with that broad yeah. disposition, even if I disagree with all of his arguments. But um, the book Before God is Good for You, I'd written a memoir called When We Were Young and Foolish, and um, that sold moderately okay. And uh, um, in it, I had disclosed a little bit of Christian belief. That was my first toe in the water about the fact that I really was a seriously believing Christian, not a seriously behaving Christian, but a seriously believing Christian. And I went to a whole lot of writers' festivals and um, I didn't see a single pro-Christian book in the whole. I saw hundreds and hundreds of books promoted in writers' festivals in Byron Bay, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, all over the place. And um, I thought this is very strange. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in Asia and it's inconceivable that you could go to an Indonesian writers' festival and not see a book about Islam or go to an Indian writers' festival and not see a book about Hinduism. Only... Uh, only us in the West could um, ignore altogether the thing which shaped us. And, of course, Christianity is a universal religion, not just for people in the West, and the majority of Christians are not Westerners, but Christianity did also shape the West. So I thought, well, this is a terrible gap here, and maybe I could contribute a thimbleful of, uh, of argument. And then the more research I did, I found that there's a lot of sociological evidence that there's not much knowledge of Christianity left in our Western society, that even people who, even a lot of people, without judging them in any way, who are nominally Christian, have very little idea of the content of belief in their own particular denomination. And then there's a whole new generation which have been sedulously kept from Christianity. It's, it's kept out of their education and everything, and they've never heard of Christianity, really. They're, they're almost a pre-Christian uh, generation. And I thought, well, you could possibly make a contribution here. And then in relation to the new atheists, I'd never read them because I thought these guys, they're going to be terribly dreary and dull. But maybe there was a half a percent of me that thought, well, you know, what if they say something that's a bit difficult to answer, then I'll have to spend a lot of time working out what I think about it. But when I actually read their books, 
I just couldn't believe how feeble they were, how utterly <laughs> dreary and how worthless the arguments were. They were just these old 19th century liberalism arguments. So people had forgotten about Christianity. They'd also forgotten about the arguments about Christianity, which had been had in a much more sophisticated way in the 19th century and the early 20th century than they're being held now. Dawkins in particular gives you very, very old, silly arguments, and he puts them next to a whole lot of irrelevant science. So he'll say, the universe is 14 billion years old, and he'll take 50 pages to describe that. And then he'll say, well, that proves there can't be a God, because obviously God wouldn't waste 14 billion years creating a garden just for human beings. Whereas my reaction to that is, well, how on earth would Dawkins know what God would do? And it strikes me as yeah. absolutely <laughs> characteristic of God that he would spend 14 billion years creating a beautiful garden just for us. That's everything I know about God. That's absolutely characteristic of God. And, of course, in making that argument, Dawkins is not really making an argument at all. He's just making a statement of prejudice. So then I thought, what's the best way to answer them? And there are some wonderful books, including yours, which answer them directly. They are really useful, good, good books. My own approach, I thought I'll take a slightly different approach I'm going to just state the case for believing in God in a positive way, and then I'll deal with Dawkins and Hitchens a little bit at the end of that chapter. But that chapter began as a much more cantankerous, combative thing, and then I, I redid it, and um, a few people helped me, um, you know, by reading it. And one or two of them said to me, now, do you really want to make a statement as nasty as that? And so I pulled, uh, you know, you... you you know what writing is, David. Sometimes you've yeah. got to pull yourself back a bit as well as energise yourself. Yeah, you do. I mean, again, it's I, I'm just finding the parallels extremely fascinating because uh, when I read Dawkins, I, was, I went to the God Delusion admiring Dawkins as a scientist and a writer, and I fully expected, I, I did not go in with negative uh, perceptions. I fully expected to find my faith severely challenged. And when I read it, as I said, after I'd finished The God Delusion, if my 14-year-old daughter couldn't have answered Dawkins, I would, have, I would have been shocked because I couldn't believe how bad it was. And I think it was Prospect Magazine, who absolutely adored Dawkins and had him as the world's top intellectual, who said they, they didn't know that he could have had such a bad book within him. Uh, I mean, it was really, it, it was atrocious. And, and you know, the level of argument, you're, you're right. So the level of argument, you get things like, um, you know, point one, evolution is true. Uh, point two, because evolution is true, there is no God. And I'm going, how do you get, how did you get that? You know, even, even granting point one, to me, it was a bit like saying, that's a brick wall. Point two, there is no God. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, 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 he they were fantastic non sequiturs. Like uh, he'd say, um, Nothing simple can produce something complex. Christians say that God is simple. Therefore, he couldn't have produced a complex <laughs> creation. And this is just such such a dopey, idiotic, meaningless series of non sequiturs. First of all, simple things can produce things that are complex. According to Darwin, um, evolution is very simple and it produces complex organisms. But secondly, when Christians say that God is simple, what they mean is that God is God, that God is always consistent, that God doesn't contradict himself. They don't mean that they've contained God in, you know, a sort of 10-year-old's book as opposed to a postgraduate book. And to misunderstand what Christians are saying when they say God is simple in his nature 
it seems to me for someone with Dawkins' academic background, that is willful misrepresentation. Or he'll take a, a passage from the Old Testament and then he'll construe it in the most obtuse, literal fashion he possibly can. And then he'll say, because it's plainly not true literally, therefore the whole of Christianity is not true. It's almost at the stage where he takes a passage that says something like, Jesus is the door to salvation. And then he says, look, Jesus wasn't a door. Therefore, I I've proved it. It's all lie. <laughs> I, I know. You know, you know, the funny thing about that is, as well, when you're saying that there were some things, I mean, I, I found myself writing things and I, I sent off a manuscript to about 30 people because, I mean, I already had was told to write the book but I wanted to see different people's reactions and the interesting thing was I used a fair bit of sarcasm you know like like uh, Dawkins talks about you idiots you can't believe in a resurrection but then he talks about existing in a universe with a green moustache you know <laughs> a parallel universe and I'm going you're kidding me and I had so much fun with that I mean it was just like he was just asking for it to be hit for six and to use a critic metaphor. And it was interesting. The only people who objected to the sarcasm or the humor at his expense were some American Christians who said, you have to be nice. And the rest, including, including the atheists, thought it was hilarious. You know, I mean, I know plenty of atheists who thought the book was dreadful. Look, let, let's let's come on to the Christians then, because you, you did God is good for you. And again, I'm seeing the parallels here. I did the Dawkins letters as a kind of general thing to show that belief in God isn't de facto evil or irrational. There's been a lot of good in society and so on. But you say in your introduction that somebody remarked to you that your book, God is Good for You, was all well and good, but he didn't get a strong sense of the living Jesus from the gospel. And in to prepare for this book, well, what did you do to prepare for this book? Because this is really a book about Christ. It's about Christ and his followers. But what did you do to prepare for this book? So, David, uh... You're absolutely right. That was in part the genesis of this book. And um, so I, I'm an, an orthodox believing Christian, and I believe the centre of the Christian religion is the personality of Jesus Christ, the person and the personality of Jesus Christ. And I state that in God is Good for You. But, you know, it's stated in a way that it's cold. It's like the light that comes from the moon. It's a cold light with no with no warmth in it. And... Um, uh, I, I then felt this challenge to communicate what what the compelling personality of, of Christ was. And in, in God is Good for You, partly to answer Dawkins, you know, defamation of the God of the Old Testament. I spent a lot, lot of time in the Old Testament and enjoyed it immensely. So I'm, I'm not a professional Christian. You know, I'm a foreign editor and I'm a journalist and everything. And I hadn't spent enough time in Scripture you know, that was one of my many failings. So for God is good for you, spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. What fun the Old Testament is. So enjoyable. Such great fun. Such magnificent literature, apart from being religiously true. And then I thought, well, where am I going to encounter Jesus? Of course, you find him in the in the lives of Christians, but you're going to encounter him mainly in the New Testament. So I read the Gospels and the Epistles as a journalist would read them. So believing that they're true, expecting them to be true, there's no disguise about my position or something. I'm not pretending that I come to it, you know, completely um, like I'm from Mars or something, like I've never heard of it. I, I come to it believing it to be true. But I read it as a journalist, looking for narrative sources and also reading a whole book at a time. So um, Christians tend to contemplate a particular verse and look for its theological significance, and that's a good thing to do. 
But I read the, the books that I became particularly fond of, A Book at a Time for Meaning. Now, then I did a lot of research about biblical scholarship and all the rest of it. But the main response was to be responding as a reader to, to the Gospels and the Epistles. And there are parts of them that are challenging and difficult. Theologians have been arguing about for 2,000 years. But most of it is perfectly clear. It's not a okay. Rubik's Cube. You know, it's not written in code. When Jesus says, love your enemy, you know, you don't really need to go to a semiotics ASIO cryptography course to work out what he means. He means love your enemy, you know. And um, so I spent a couple of years uh, reading the New Testament and reading about the New Testament. And um, although the scholarship was very useful and very, very good to do, the power of the New Testament itself was what struck me. The, the vivid, visceral nature of the crucifixion, the, the stark nature, the humanity of it. And, um, and I thought, wow, this is a great story. And again, the culture is kind of not paying much attention. You know, the, uh -huh. maybe 50 years ago or 100 years ago, the book would have been completely superfluous because everybody would be so familiar with the, uh -huh. uh, with the Gospels. But um, I don't think people... So I've, I've self-described myself as a Christian my whole life. I hadn't read really the Gospel from start to finish previously. I, you know, I'd go to church, I'd hear the verses, I'd read bits of it in different classrooms and quasi-academic courses that I'd done, but just to read it as a reader and as a journalist uh, and just to be open to the power of it was, uh, was, fan it was a fantastic experience. And um, I didn't find that it disturbed me. I mean, it, it challenged me, but it didn't, you know, it didn't confuse me or something. I didn't think to myself, now, what did Jesus really mean by all that, you know? Yeah. Do you know, you're, uh, I mean, as a Catholic, you'll be well aware of the Westminster Confession of Faith. <laughs> absolutely. Um, absolutely. It, it talks in there about, I love this word, the perspicuity of scriptures. In other words, the clearness uh, at, at saying there are difficult things. Just what you've said. You know, you really are a good Presbyterian, actually. Um, <laughs> you, can, you, you better go and confess to your priest that this is what's happening no, to no, you. I'm proud, <laughs> I'm proud of it. Yeah, but you, you, what you've just said there is that I, exactly that anyone can pick up the scriptures and read it and get the meaning, the basic meaning of it, and yet you can read it, as I have, for 40 years and still discover new things all the time. It, it, it is a most extraordinary document in terms of just even human fascination and style, but from a, a spiritual point of view. Uh, one aspect, I'd, I'm going to ask you one more question because already I think our time is pretty well gone. Um, you talk about... The Bible, uh, I, I, I like this. I didn't consider this to be at all flippant or, irre or irreverent about the Bible being great fun. Can you explain that? I'll let you explain that before we finish. So, David, thanks so much. I think uh, Christianity suffers sometimes from bad publicity. It looks from the outside as if it's a dour, dull sort of thing, full of rules and regulations, and there's no, uh, there's no joy in it. Whereas, of course... Christianity is, is full of fun as a living community. It's full of feast days. You know, when we feast, we feast. And when we fast, we cheat. You know, maybe that's an Irish uh, <laughs> Irish approach. But, uh, but the New Testament, I was surprised at how much fun and humanity there is in it. Yeah. So, which, again, speaks to its authenticity. Because if you were making it up 200 years later as a diaphanous spiritual experience, you wouldn't have all the cross-grained humanity in it. So I've got chapters about Mary and about Paul. 
And I love the interplay between Paul and Peter. So Mm -hmm. Paul is this wonderfully irascible, fabulous, inspiring, magnificent, theologically profound, but also cross-grained, difficult, confrontational, uh, demanding, uh, argumentative person. And uh, I fell in love with his letter to the Galatians and I like at the start, he goes up and he sees Peter and James and John, the established pillars, and he says, now, tell me, fellas, am I doing the right thing? And they say, yeah, good on you, Paul. You're doing a good job. He says, great, fabulous. And then a minute later, so that's him being a good boy. Then a minute later, he's having this furious argument with Peter. He said, yeah. I told Cephas straight to his face. He uses the Aramaic Cephas for yeah. Peter. You're just completely wrong and you stand condemned, blah, blah, blah. Then a bit later, he's uh, talking to the Galatians about them being misled by people. And he says, I wish the people misleading you would all go and castrate themselves. And there's good reason for thinking <laughs> he's having a bit of a joke there. He's, he's yeah. certainly not saying it literally. Then quite in, in quite a lot of his letters, he's concerned with fundraising. Um, you know, we've got to get the collection ready for Jerusalem. So they didn't, the early Christians, their diaphanous vision of Jesus didn't exempt them from all the sort of practicality of life. And then Paul's letters could be a little difficult here and there to understand. So there's a lovely passage in Peter where he says, well, look, I know Paul is a bit difficult, a bit hard to understand. I get it. People, you know, misinterpret him. But guess what? He's my beloved brother. What he writes is the scripture and you've just got to put up with him. Bad luck. And uh, he doesn't quite say bad luck. But, yeah. I mean, the, the interplay, Peter is wise, Paul is brilliant. They're both wise and they're both brilliant. But this these very starkly different personalities and their interplay and um, how much uh, how much good human uh, stuff there is. And then in a lot of Paul's letters, he's got personal touches, you know, tell uh-huh. Prissa, you know, send my regards, blah, blah, blah. And he's sending the slave Simeon back to the slave owner. He says, now you must treat him as if you'd treat me and I'm going to come and make sure you did, you know. Yeah. He's, he's threatening <laughs> the guy saying, you know, and, and it's just terrific. It just has the living, breathing quality of uh, of humanity about it, in my view. And there is humour. I mean, I, to say that the Bible is great fun, there are there are profoundly deep things. There are shocking things. There are confusing things. There are disturbing things. There are poetic. But, but there is also humour in there as well. And, and we could discuss. But it's just, I, I think, it's, as you say, human. Um just let me mention two parts uh, and then we'll stop. Uh, you say once you accept that the New Testament is the work of eyewitnesses and reporters who spoke to eyewitnesses, then Jesus becomes the most richly documented figure of the ancient world. And I love that because you're a reporter. Uh, I'm a historian and uh, we, we know that that's true. But I, I love where you, you finish your introduction. And I knew we wouldn't get beyond the introduction. It's still it's still more important for people to know God than to know about God, to experience the friendship of Jesus than to know about the theoretical possibility of the friendship of Jesus. And you finish the introduction by saying, now let me introduce you to Jesus and his first friends. So next time we come and do this, we're going to look at chapter one, which is the death of Jesus Christ. And I'm amazed you began there, but I think that is wonderful. Um, Greg, can I just thank you so much? Can I say to people who are listening to this, if you've got any questions that you want to ask Greg, then email them to me. Um, 
I'll put the the email uh, on the the podcast, but it's simple. It's it's the weefly at it's the weefly at gmail.com. But email me and uh, we'll I'll try and put some of your questions to Greg as well. But next week we're going to go on to or not next week a fortnight's time I think it will be we go and look at the death of Jesus Christ. Greg, thank you so much for your time and really really appreciate it. Thanks very much, David. Just a great joy to talk to you. Thanks so much indeed. Mm-hmm.